I want more of you, God. More of you. God, our Saviour, look on this wounded world in pity and in power. Hold us fast to your promises of peace, won for us by your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our readings. Um, our first readings from is, um, Psalm 133, uh, which is on page 625 if you want to follow it in the Bible. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life for evermore. Amen. Amen. Last week, we came to the end of our series on uh, basics of Christianity, particular emphases, uh, emphases that we focus on in a church like St. Jude's. Um, we've got a few more weeks before the end of the summer term. Um, when we start, as we, as we enter the summer holiday, we start our summer school on prayer. And before that, uh, we've got four or five weeks, and uh, we're going to uh, take a look at some of the parables of Jesus, just uh, two or three of them, um, some, uh, some of the strong parables, stories of Jesus, through which he, he makes a powerful comment and, and uh, insight into our lives. I'm going to start with the most famous of Jesus' stories, um, his parables, uh, which is, of course, the parable of the prodigal son. It comes after two other uh, lost stories, the, the story of the lost sheep and the story of the lost coin, and then the third, the third story is the story of the lost son, the prodigal son. Um, I, very unusually, I'm going to take the opportunity to preach twice on this story, so we won't get, that. I mean, there's so much in it. I could, I could certainly preach three times. I've never quite dared to preach three times on the same passage. I nearly did this time. Um, but uh, I'm going to look at different aspects of the story in the two different weeks. So we'll read the same story each week just to remind ourselves of uh, what's in the story. And then I'll take a particular focus on it this week. So it's uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Of course, it's uh, on the screen behind me, but it's on page 1049 if you want to follow it in the Bible. Just before we begin, let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is your story. 
This is the story above all that you told of your Heavenly Father, of our Heavenly Father, of our journey to Him and His journey to us. Of the younger son who journeys into a far land, reminding us of you, the son who journeys into a far world, far from your father's house. But unlike this younger son, you do so to find us and to bring us home. Like the older son, like the father coming to meet us and bringing us home. Lord Jesus, send your Holy Spirit now to fill our hearts, to open my mouth that I might speak with your power, your story, and that I might share about it, your word. Fill us, Holy Spirit, open our ears that we may hear, and open our hearts that we might respond with reality and sincerity and with truth, with wholeheartedness and joy. By your Spirit, change our lives. May this story become our story. Amen. Verse 11. Jesus continued this third story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. 
Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, after all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Jesus' story of the prodigal son must be the most famous story we know from the Bible. Well known and amazingly rich. A story we never seem quite to get to the bottom of. I don't know when was the first time you heard the story. I would imagine for me it would be a um, picture book reading the story with my parents. Certainly I've come across it again and again through my childhood. I've acted it out in different ways. And always when I read it, there's more to be seen. It's a story which goes right to the heart of the gospel, tracing with poignancy the plight of us all. We can, I guess, identify with the younger brother, the younger son who sets off into the world to make his fortune. We've all kind of experienced for ourselves or had those who have set off to do, to do that very thing. And, and that kind of sense of leaving home to do it yourself is so important in our Western tradition. What's our theme tune? I did it my way. But as so often, it goes tragically wrong. We watch it repeated in so many films and documentaries. So much hope, vibrant, youthful, turns to bitter despair. Vulnerable young women are caught in a cycle of shame. Purposeless young men are trapped in a spiral of drugs and violence, and darkness closes in. And then, through the darkness, a little glimmer of light, a faint echo of hope from long ago and far away. 
parents' home, would there still be a welcome for me there? Would there be that yellow ribbon tied around the old oak tree still waiting for me? Could I find a haven there, if nowhere else, where I could lick my wounds and recoup my losses and try out into the world again? And that, says Jesus, is God's message for us all. Our choices have caught up with this, cleaned us out. We've sown the wind and reaped the whirlwind. Trapped by sin, whether we recognize it or not, we are caught in darkness. And yet still, in our hopes, there is that faint gleam of light, that echo of hope from far away and long ago. And the reason why gospel means good news is because that faint glimmer of light, that echo of hope, does not deceive us. It is true. There is a home waiting for us if we will but turn around and turn back. Like the prodigal son, we come to ourselves with weary legs and aching hearts and we turn again home. As St. Augustine said, third century bishop, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. But remember that this is a parable of two sons. A man had two sons. So today I want to look at the parable from the perspective of the two alienated brothers. Our first reading, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, but not in this house. A man had two sons, two brothers, but they couldn't even live together, let alone in unity. And we all know what happens in amicable families once love or business or inheritance gets in the way. I was watching a Midsummer Mystery murder two or three weeks ago, and there it was again. Two brothers and an inheritance. One recognized, one unrecognized, and the terrible plot unfolds. Here's a story I once read in a local newspaper. Bob and Jim were brothers working together in the pleasure boat industry in the south of England. After some while, however, Jim set up on his own and took much of their trade with him. What's more, he pinched Bob's best pilots. Bob was reduced to more and more desperate measures to stay afloat. One day, Jim spotted Bob illegally using a 15-year-old 15 to captain one of his boats. And to add insult to injury, he informed the police. Bob was prosecuted and as a result, was bankrupted. His marriage unraveled, his life fell apart. The two brothers never spoke again. Two brothers trying to live together, not in peace.
the older son is indirectly mentioned twice at the beginning of this story. We think the first section is all about the younger son, the younger brother, but in fact the older brother is there as well. First of all, he's the other brother of two when the first brother makes his outrageous request to have his inheritance early. So he takes half of his, um, his father's inheritance. The inheritance is divided up between the two sons. And so the other son is the one who profits from this request of his younger brother. And then he's there again as, as the one who is, sorry. Okay, so he's there as the other brother and he's there as the other beneficiary. If we were contemporary hearers of this parable, we would notice two things about the older brother if we were listening carefully and not distracted by the outrageous behavior of the younger brother. We would notice two responses of the older brother that we would be expecting which are strikingly absent. The first is we would expect the older brother to refuse the inheritance, to refuse his share of the inheritance as a protest against the outrageous request of his younger brother but the older brother is silent. Secondly, we would expect the older brother as the nearest person to both sides of this, um, of this uh, contretemps, of this, um, uh, this uh, tension, um, to take the traditional, to traditional role of intermediary and reconciler in this dispute. But again, he is silent. We think of the older brother as, um, as the dutiful son who's rightly angry with his younger brother um, who has treated their father so shamefully. But even at the start of this story, we sense that things are not quite right for this older son and his father. By accepting his share of the distribution, he benefits from his younger brother's leap from grace, and by refusing to intervene when he should, he allows his son to disappear off into the sunset, and so rids himself of a housemate with whom he would be expected to share the family home and resources once their father died. So already, in the silence, we are hearing that there is a silent rebellion going on in the heart of the older brother, just as there is a public rebellion going on in the heart of the younger brother. Well, we pick up the story some years later. The younger son has run through all his father's cash. Uh, famine has hit. Um, he has uh, hit rock bottom. He's got nothing to eat. He's doing the worst of all possible jobs for a young Jewish boy. He's feeding the pigs. There could not be a worse job. He's hungry, starving, without resources, without friends. And he thinks to himself of the only person in the world who might conceivably still care for him, take him in, rescue him, his father, the father whom he has treated so shamefully. 
And so he comes to himself. He takes the courageous step of turning home in all his shame and failure, of running the gauntlet of hostility of the village who have seen this man treated so abysmally by his son. And what does he find when he gets there with his prepared speech, um, acknowledging his fault and denying all, uh, all worthiness and asking only for some help or for a job? What does he find? He finds a bear hug and generosity and, um, and a welcome, public honor, and a party. The best robe, the father's best robe is brought to him. The fatted calf is sacrificed and, and the whole village is invited to a party to celebrate the coming home of this errant son. And so the sound of festivities begin and music calls those who are up in the fields down to the village, down to the house for the celebration. And for some reason, that we're not quite told, the older brother hasn't heard about this in advance. Okay, so maybe the mobile network up in the fields wasn't that good, and so he was out of contact, you know, it wasn't possible to send him a message. Or maybe the father guessed that the older brother would not be pleased about this development and would try to stop the party before it had begun. Either way, he arrives back at the home to find the party has already begun. So what's his immediate response to the fact that there is a party going on at home? Hey, fantastic, party time! What's the celebration? How exciting! No. He is immediately suspicious. What's this all about and why have I not been told about it? So learning of his brother's ignominious return, he faces a choice. He can go in and congratulate him and welcome him home, probably through gritted teeth, or he can stay out, stay outside, and insult his father. To stay outside is to insult his father. Because in that Middle Eastern um, family culture, the oldest son has a very special place in the home. He is the father's right hand. He is the father's arm of hospitality. So he is the one who stands by the door and greets the father's guests and gives them a drink and uh, shows them the food and generally offers the hospitality for his father. If he disagrees with, with the father's plan, then it's for him to carry out his father's wishes and protest quietly in private later on. But this son makes his protest very, very clear outside in the courtyard. He angrily refuses to enter, publicly insulting and humiliating his father and putting himself incidentally on exactly the same level as the younger son whom he has so despised. Well, the father hears that his old, older son is stamping about outside. Instead of ignoring him or commanding his, his, uh, his, cut to his coming in and joining the party, as is his right, but which would diminish his son, 
Instead, he leaves the party and goes outside to invite his older son to come back home, to come into the house. Now, as this kind of unexpectedly generous offer, which given to the younger son, had blown him away. He knew that he had no right to a welcome, and yet he received such a warm one, which he didn't deserve, that he was just overwhelmed by it. When the same kind of offer is made to the older son, all the father reaps is a tirade. The silent rebellion which we saw in him at the beginning of the story has gone on festering under the surface. And finally, it becomes apparent in his abrupt words to his father. So in every other conversation between two members of this family, um, the, 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 the dialogue, the, the sentence begins with an honorific father, or my dear son, my father, my son. But this son begins immediately with, look, look, you never. Clearly, this is a snub to his father. His brother has come home, and he immediately accuses his father of favoritism. To me, you never even. And this guy who has been flaunting his abuse of you, his, his uh, rebellion of you, he has been running through your resources to him, for him, you kill the fatted calf. Interestingly, the younger brother comes back and in his humiliation, his self-humbling, he attributes himself the relationship of a, of a servant, of a slave, to his father. Make me as one of your hired servants. It's very interesting if you read the older brother's um, tirade here, his diatribe against his father, how he makes himself also out to be a servant. Look, he says, all these years I have been slaving for you. The words of a servant. I have never disobeyed your, your orders. The words of a servant. Yet you never gave me anything. The words of a hired hand. And what he wants is not to celebrate with his family, but to celebrate with his own friends. You never gave me a, even a, a, a goat that I could go and celebrate with my friends. And yet when this guy comes back from who knows where doing who knows what, you sacrifice for him the fatted calf. Each of the children have explicitly or implicitly withdrawn their love from their father and made themselves out to be his servant. But the father doesn't want servants. The father wants children. He wants sons. So for each of them, he humbles himself publicly. He goes out of his house to welcome them back home to share his joy. But here's the tragic difference. 
The younger son knows that he has no right to be at that party. He knows that he, is, he has got no... Um, he, he does not deserve to be this guest of honor that he is being made out to be. He is blown away by the love that his father shows to him. Whereas the older brother, he doesn't see it that way at all. He thinks that this party is about favoritism. It's about the fact that the father still loves the younger son more than he loves him. It's kind of as if all of his life he's carried that moment when he, as a small boy, saw the young baby, you know, brought into the home and he thought, the, he saw the love in his, in his father's eyes and his mother's eyes resting upon that new baby and he thought, I've lost it, I've lost my place in my father's heart. And all his life he's been struggling to get that love back to win the love of his father with all his struggling, all his labor, all his, all his serving. And again, he sees his father looking at his younger brother with love and he thinks, that's it, that is the story of my life. He loves him more than he's given him the fatted calf. He doesn't love me. He can't see that the party is secondary. It's just an expression of the father's double heart of love for both his sons and of the gladness in his heart that they are both together again in his home. He can't see that. All he can see is the son once again fated and the center of attention. This story has no ending, in fact. All it has is an appeal. Your brother was dead, and now he's alive again. He's here home. We had to celebrate. Will you not come in and celebrate with us? And we don't know whether the older brother joined them at home in the party. Those who are listening to Jesus would have so identified against the younger brother, they would have so um, resented and rejected his approach to his father that they would have identified implicitly with the older brother. So when this question comes as a hammer blow at the end, they are hearing the question to themselves. These these prostitutes, these sinners, these tax collectors, whom the Father loves and wants to welcome home, they were dead, and now they are alive again. Will you not join us in the party? What would their response be? What is ours? I'm not the oldest brother in my family, but I am an older brother. I have always been at home. I have never run away. I have always been there in the holidays. I have always been the one pulling up the wild oats for my father who was a farmer, going out into the night to look after the sheep 
I was the one who was in the lambing shed doing the lambing. I was in the father's business, my father's business. I have never rebelled. I have never, I have never, you know, I have never smoked. I have never drunk myself into a coma. I have never taken drugs. I have always towed the line. I have always been there. And now I'm a vicar. You can all go. I will still be here at 6.30. I am the one who remained at home. And you know, I can feel inside me the anguish of the older brother who sees the younger brother go and come back and be fated. Well, actually, none of my brothers went off the rails either, so I'm blessed in that sense. I've never had to see somebody blow everything, rip the family apart, and then come home and expect to be welcomed. I wonder how I would have felt if that had been the case. Could I have welcomed that person back with my father's joy, or would I have remained suspicious and outside, rejecting it. In the West, we're very hot on personal rights. And our Heavenly Father loves it when we defend the rights of others. The orphan, the widow, the vulnerable. He loves it when we work hard to protect them and to save them. Those who are torn away from their homes, those who those who are lost and broken and afraid, when we defend them, he loves it because that's on his heart for them. But to be absolutely honest, isn't it the case that most of our emotional energy goes into protecting our own rights? Here are the questions to ask. How would I feel if... I fought for the compensation of my neighbor to discover that in doing so, I therefore had to lose my own compensation. How would it be if at work I, I saw uh, one of my colleagues given um, a, another chance? only then to lose my opportunity of, of promotion for that person. How would it be in uh, a school situation where uh, my papers were marked again so that uh, one of my friends could have a fairer deal and I lost out a, as a result? How would it be for us if defending the rights and the, um, the needs of others, we lose our own um, blessings. Because you see, the thing is, grace is a fantastic concept if you are in the one in the need of it. How wonderful for that younger brother to come home having lost everything and to find that the slate has been wiped clean and that he is welcomed again into his own home, into his father's household. Once again cared for, once again given hope and a future. How amazing for that younger son.
And grace is noble, wonderful, when you're the initiator of it. We watch the Father and we admire His maturity, his, the strength of His compassion, His, his, um, his courage and his grace in giving again to this no-hoper who has already insulted and abused him. But grace is rubbish when you are the one who loses out for the sake of somebody else for a cause that you never chose in the first place. How is it for us? This twist has often affected us in lots of, in different ways, but spiritually, talking about something of my own experience, our experience as a, as a kind of older statesman congregation or church in, in the nation and across the world, how often we look at younger churches that have come from nowhere and we, we see God bless them mightily and hugely with power and with growing numbers and with energy and vitality and amazing worship and lots of people who want to go there and, and, and be worship leaders and, you know, do fantastic and exciting things and they don't have to pay so much money to the national church and they don't have to, they don't have to be in all of those difficult places, you know, all those parishes across the place that drain so much resource and they just have a final time. How hard is that for us? And how hard is it for us when we see somebody newly coming to faith out of a dreadful past and situation, and we see them mightily blessed, becoming evangelists and, and people of power in God's kingdom. And we look at our own lives, and, and we have been there all along. You know, we have, we have loved and we have lived faithful lives, and, and we, there's no power in us. It's so unfair. For us older brothers. I don't know if these comparisons ring bells for you. They do for me as I've traveled across the world and seen different kinds of churches and congregations. But maybe for you it's closer to home. Maybe there is somebody. Maybe there is a brother or a sister in your family or in your spiritual family a brother and sister in Christ who has hurt you terribly. And there's an opportunity for re reconciliation, but you can't bear that reconciliation because you would have to let go of, you'd have to deal with the terrible hurt inside you and you can't let go of it. You are too hurt. But to enter the joy of your childhood in grace, of your sonship or daughtership. You have to let go of the resentment, the rebellion, whether it's, whether it's um, um, explicit, whether you have gone far from God, or whether it's just secret, and silent, and implicit because you've stood on and watched other people blessed when you felt you were not. If we are to be true sons and daughters of our Father and join Him in His joy, we have to let go of our own agendas, our own struggles, and to join Him in His 
in his joy. How good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity, says the psalmist. For there the Lord commands his blessing, and that blessing will be yours. A blessing of, a blessing of release, of healing, of joy, of intimacy with your Father, of fellowship with your brothers and sisters, sundered once and now together with you. Some of us know that we are the prodigal sons, that we have been far, far from God, and we have turned again home, and we have found those welcoming arms reaching out towards us. Some of us know that we are still on the journey home, and we can't believe that our Father would still welcome us after all that we have done in our lives and all that we have said of God in our hearts. Some, some of us know that we were prodigal sons once. And we experience the amazing grace, the amazing joy of being welcomed home. And yet somehow, after the, over the years since then, we have become older brothers. And now there are new people who are coming back into the Father's kingdom, new people who haven't served the time, new people who haven't labored in their Father's kingdom, and we can be tempted to resent their coming and their blessing. And we realize that we have stepped outside our Father's home, even though we thought we'd never been away. Whether you've traveled far from God or tried to stay close by His side, your Heavenly Father loves you and He is calling to you to come back in from the cold. I heard the story of a money broker who was hugely successful. He had, he had, he had achieved everything that you would want in life. You know, all the wealth, all the, all the great things in life. And then one day, he got a call to hurry back to his father's bedside, who lay dying. And as he sat beside his dying father, he heard his father whisper in his ear, Son, I am so proud of you, so proud to be your father. I love you so much. And that money broker dissolved into tears because he realized that everything he had ever struggled to do had been filling a void left by the fact that he had never heard those words from his father. He did not know of his father's pride in him, of his father's love for him. And so he had tried to fill that void with the good things of the world. And he knew then that they had been throwing throwing things into the wind, into the void. Is it the case for us still that we are not absolutely sure, confident of how much our Father loves us, how much He values us? We have struggled all our lives to deserve His love, to deserve that honor. And we still labor and struggle because we don't know we, don't, we are not sure that He loves us. And so when we see blessing elsewhere, we don't know that we are part of that blessing. We think that God's 
gaze has turned away from us somewhere else, we still feel unsure. Perhaps the older brother, the cause of all this anger was just that he wanted to know that his father loved him as much as this other errant son, and he did not know it. One of my favorite stories of all, having been a missionary elsewhere in the world, is of the missionary, American missionary, who came home after long years of service and came back on a ship. And as the ship came into port, uh, on, the, on the quayside, there was a marching band. There were balloons flying. There were streamers. And the crowds were cheering and singing. And he had this amazing sense of coming home. But then, the passengers on the ship were kept back. They were, they were prevented from leaving. And the most important passenger on the ship, who it turned out, to their surprise, they hadn't known, was the President of the United States of America, went down the gangplank to cheering and band playing and balloons flying. And when the presidential party had left and gone and the band had gone with them, then the other passengers were allowed to leave the ship. And by the time the missionary had found his cases and got down the bank gangplank and onto the quay, there was nobody left. There was nobody to greet him. There was no band, there were no balloons, there was no streamers, there was not even anybody from his sending organization, and there was nobody from his family. He was there alone. He had come home, and there was nobody there. And he sat on his luggage in despair. And he said, Father, I have labored all these years for you. Could there not have been somebody here to greet me when I came home? And then in his ear, he heard a little voice, and it said, My son, you have not yet come home. You have not yet come home. And when you do, the party will be very big. Jesus said to his disciples as he took his leave of them, In my Father's house are many mansions, many homes, many rooms. And I'm going there now to prepare a place for you guys. And I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. In our Father's house are many homes waiting for us. And if we can just hang on in there, if we can come in from the cold and allow the sun to lead us back, the party will be very great when we finally come home. Shall we pray? I wonder if the band would very kindly um, come and play for us our next song and just let us sit and listen. Sit and listen. And if this song, which is a prayer, is your song, your prayer, then you can sing it in your heart. And if it's not yet your song, 
not yet your prayer and you would like it to be, there will be people who would love to pray with you after the service and help you make this song your own. Whatever that means for you. If you are if you are far away and need to come home, or if you have just stepped out into the fields and are not coming home, open your hearts to the Lord Jesus and let him bring you home. Thank you.